This morning in adult Sunday school, we kind of launched into our study of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, and uh, examined four verses talking about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced that the reason the author of Hebrews began with the supremacy of Christ was because the Hebrews, to which the author was writing, were in danger of thinking that Jesus was something other than supreme, that he was something less than what he claimed to be in the New Testament ministry that he had. Certainly the almost Jesus is one of Satan's favorite tactics for deceiving people and moving them away from Christ, not toward Christ. If we can have a Jesus of our own making, then Satan is perfectly content for us to worship Jesus. If we have an almost accurate understanding of who Jesus is, the clever deceiver is no doubt satisfied. But this morning, there's even a more terrifying error than coming close to the understanding of Jesus and having a misinformed perspective of Jesus resulting in error. There is a much more terrifying situation to consider from Matthew chapter 12. This is the climax of the conflicts between the Pharisees and Jesus that Matthew's been recounting for us, establishing the messianic claim of Jesus through these controversies. And this morning we'll find that while in Hebrews, some will see Jesus as someone slightly different than who he is, and their end will be eternal judgment, for he is only to be worshipped as who he claimed to be. But there are others, terrifyingly, There are others who will see Jesus exactly for who he is and reject him. And the result will be their rejection by Jesus. This is a much more fearful circumstance, for at this point, there is no grace available. There is no forgiveness as a potential. To see him in all of his glory, to see the fullness of his majesty, and to blaspheme and deny him is to remove oneself from any hope of grace. In fact, Hebrews will talk about this same circumstance later. Let me read it to you. Listen as I read from Hebrews chapter 6, describing the exact same scenario. In a totally different context. Hebrews chapter 6. The author of the Hebrews. Rebukes the people for their immaturity in Christ. Saying that they should be moving on to. Much more. Theologically deep concepts. But they are still stuck in the elementary doctrines of Christ. He says that they will do that if. If God permits, verse four, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. And then have fallen away. Verse six says, so it is impossible, verse four, for those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and who have shared in the Holy Spirit and then fallen away to be restored. Verse 5 continues the description, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the ages to come. That is the resurrection power. They've, they've experienced it. They've been around it. They've been so close to it that they've tasted it. And yet they fall away. 
it is not possible for them to be restored to any repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. The primary idea, the one truth that flows from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32 is this. To be ignorant of Jesus is to reject him. But to know his fullness and deny him is to be rejected by him. To be ignorant of Jesus is to reject Jesus. But to know his fullness and deny him is to be rejected by him. This is one of the hardest sayings of our Lord Jesus that we'll find this morning in our paragraph in Matthew chapter 12. And yet, I believe this is for our encouragement and it is for warning those who come dangerously close to Christ in all of his fullness and deny him. Let's read beginning in verse number 22. You read along as I read out loud. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, that is Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they, therefore they, that is your sons, will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he is first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Notice these words from verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. These are the words of God for our consideration and study this morning. Gracious Father, we need grace for these moments. I need grace for these moments. I depend entirely upon your Holy Spirit's empowering, enabling, freeing work to exercise gifts that he has given to teach your word, to proclaim your word. I ask that these hard words from Jesus would be rightly understood so that we might rightly worship and rightly respond according to your grace and work in us. Use your word to shape us for your glory. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.
we're just going to look at two divisions for this paragraph. And really, this is quite simple. Matthew is not so concerned about the event. He's concerned about the implications of the event that's going on here in this conflict. So we're going to see the final conflict, and then we'll see the final conclusions. Just two basic divisions, the final conflict and the final conclusions. This is the last of the Pharisees' conflicts with Jesus in Matthew chapter 12. So it's the final conflict, and it does have some very final conclusions. And they are the conclusions that are attached to the final conflict. So we'll see these two main divisions. Verses 22 through 29, we'll look at the final conflict. Verses 30 through 32, we'll look at the final conclusions. This is not something new that we've just read. You remember back in Matthew chapter 9, where Jesus recounted, or Matthew recounted rather, the Pharisees' opposition to Jesus and their claim that he was doing what he was doing by the power of Satan. That that was their mantra for the people of Israel. So we pick up this final conflict and it is becoming almost routine. A demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And Matthew in his understated way says, and Jesus healed him. So the man spoke and saw. We get nothing more about the story. Other than that the demon possessed man, if we understand the language correctly, was blind and mute. He couldn't speak and he couldn't see because he was demon oppressed. So the, the tri-fold miracle really is dependent upon the power of Jesus over the demon. In casting out the demon, Jesus also accomplishes the complete and total healing of this man's blindness and his inability to communicate. I do appreciate the fact that Matthew includes that when Jesus healed the man, it resulted in him being able to speak and see. Contrary to modern day gifts of healing, Jesus was a healer in the most complete fashion. If they were blind and healed by Jesus, they now saw with 2010. If they could not speak and were healed by Jesus, they could now speak. If they had a withered hand, the arm was extended, the hand was healed. If they were paraplegic, they could now walk. There was no partial, there was no almost healing when it came to Jesus' ministry. The power of verse 22 was evident to everybody who was there, including the Pharisees. Don't misunderstand the circumstances. Everybody understood what was happening when Jesus dealt with this demon-possessed man. Nobody missed it. Nobody didn't catch the power of Jesus casting out a demon resulting in sight and voice for someone who could not see and who could not speak. The people, on the one hand, responded in verse number 23. Could this be the son of David? And don't misunderstand this. This is not a, this is not a movement toward Christ. They are not sure about this. They are not confident that he is, but the power that he's displaying at least causes them to ask, can this be the son of David? Son of David is not news to us. You remember Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1? Let's flip back to Matthew 1, 1. Lest we lose our bearings in our study of Matthew. Matthew 1, 1, declaring the messianic position and role of Jesus from Nazareth, establishes his genealogy. And this is the heading for the genealogy of Jesus in verse number one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus 
the Christ, that is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those two terms, the son of David and the son of Abraham, are directly connected to God's Old Testament covenants with those individuals. Now, Jesus was a descendant by blood of David and of Abraham. But when the Jewish, uh, when the New Testament Jew said son of David, can this be the son of David? They were not speaking of bloodline. They were speaking of the covenant fulfillment that could be true in Jesus and in fact was true in Jesus. He is the son, that is, he's the seed. He's the fulfillment of the covenant with David that a Davidic line would be established and that a king would come and rule in perfect dominion, establishing perfect righteousness and peace and a restoration of the nation of Israel. And so when the people see this miracle, they ask appropriately, can this one be the Messiah? And of course, in this final conflict, the Pharisees can have no such question being asked. Pharisees quickly move to squelch such a question. The people are faced with a dilemma of monumental proportions. Jesus is from Nazareth. He's a servant of the Father. He's not kingly in his appearance or his temperament. He doesn't carry a sword. He's not dominating people. He teaches radical counterculturalism. But he is casting out demons and people are talking that can't talk and seeing that can't see. So we've got a problem. And the Pharisees hear the problem and they've got to have an answer to preserve their place as the leaders of the people. And so in verse number 24, we find the tragic response from the Pharisees in the hardness of their arrogance and pride. When the Pharisees heard that question, they said, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Calm down, folks. Calm down. We know what you just saw because we saw it too. Calm down. We know that man is no longer demon possessed and we know he can now see and talk even though seconds ago he was blind and mute. But it's okay because what happened here was simply Satan working through Jesus from Nazareth to cast out a demon. So this one is controlled by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. This is a name for Satan. We've talked about this already in our study of Matthew in chapter 9. Though the Pharisees know the question is the right question, and though they clearly see the power that leads to the right answer, they attribute the power of Christ to Satan. Now this is important because this final conflict leads to shocking final conclusions. Verses 22-29 have to be understood for us to rightly interpret Verses 30 through 32. So the Pharisees respond in verse 24. And now we see our Messiah, our King. The son of David. Answering this accusation. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them. Jesus is aware of their evil intentions and their evil thoughts. And he confronts them with a logic that is so tight they cannot squirm out. There's a part of me as a human being. I grew up in a home where my dad, prior to coming to Christ, was on his way to being a lawyer. Um, we, a defense lawyer of all things, uh, lawyers, 
Uh, we love you. You're here. I know, I know who you are, lawyers. We don't have any jokes for you this morning, all right? My dad was on his way to being a lawyer, which meant that I grew up in a home where arguing was an art form, okay? If we had an argument, and oftentimes those crossed lines of sin, <laughs> if we had an argument, it was usually a well-crafted argument. Points of logic that didn't match were pointed out. That logic doesn't hold up. Your argument falls flat because of these reasons. You can't say that because you build it on a false premise. And what, I, what, what part of me uh, feels when I read these verses, verses 25 through 29, is just the gnawing chest tightness of the Pharisees as they get stuck with the tightest logic possible. They cannot get out of this circumstance. Jesus makes the Pharisees look like the fools they were. Read it again in verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or even a house divided against itself will stand. So, if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast, out, cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he binds the strong man first? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus layers his arguments and he hammers like a sledgehammer blow. He hammers these arguments in the hearing of the people and in the hearing of the Pharisees. He begins with a simple argument that no kingdom has ever lasted when internal battling has gone on. I mean, this has never made it. If a kingdom, a monarchy has competing influences, tearing it apart from inside, it falls. This is, this is not rocket science to us, and it's not rocket science to them. Jesus puts his finger on the folly of their claim. No city and its government, if it has its own government destroying its government, will ever last. And you know, and I know, that when the home is marked by conflict in the authorities against one another, the home crumbles. The family falls apart when authorities are competing against one another. So Jesus just uses common sense information and he presents this airtight argument. Verse 26, if Satan's casting out Satan, he's divided against himself and he's already laid waste. Don't misunderstand. Jesus is not promoting the standing of Satan's kingdom. Okay, He's not here saying, Satan's kingdom won't stand, and as if it ever will. Satan has been defeated. He has been soundly defeated. He exists on the leash of the sovereign God who will banish him to an eternal hell with the rest of those that he has deceived and led astray. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. The obvious picture is found in verse 27. If I, Jesus, cast out demons by Beelzebul, that is by Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. So first, it doesn't make any sense that a kingdom would be established and would be furthered by leaders within the kingdom destroying the leaders of the kingdom. That, that is completely 
ludic- ludicrous. That, 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 that's ridiculous. I can just hear my dad in the car saying, but that doesn't make any sense. Just think about what you're saying. Jesus looks at the Pharisees and with deadly, earnest seriousness, he says, this doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, if I'm doing it by demons and your sons, the junior Pharisees, are also participating in this kind of activity, which was, from the best we can understand, a superstitious routine of exorcism, much like what is practiced today in some of the most mystic corners of Roman Catholicism. If they're doing this, and I'm doing it by the power of Satan, who exactly are they doing it by? Your little followers, your sons, your junior Pharisees. Their claim is idiotic at the level of human experience. Their claim falls dramatically short when countered against their own experience with those that follow them. And finally, Jesus pounds it home in verse number 29 with a word picture. How could someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. In other words, nobody gets to go into the boss's house and ruin it unless he first takes care of the boss. So if Satan's behind this, I'm destroying Satan's kingdom. There's, there's no way I'm in cohorts with Satan if I'm destroying Satan's house. Understood? Verse 28 is the, is the capstone of this all. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here's the fearful alternative. Here is the, the last hammer blow. Pharisees, people, you saw the power. It's ridiculous to say that I'm doing it by Satan. So the only other alternative is I'm doing this and this power comes from the Spirit of God, which means the kingdom of God is in your midst. I am the king. I'm the Messiah. And that alternative means your end. It means you must submit. You must give away your agenda. You must fall in worship of me. That's what Jesus says. If the kingdom is upon you, It is bad news for the Pharisees who have claimed that the power of the Spirit of God is actually the power of the spirits who accompany Satan. Case closed. This is it. Verse 29, case closed. Pharisees look like fools. But that is not the end of the story. Jesus does not rest there. If it was the embarrassment of the Pharisees, that ended this story, it would be much less terrifying to read this and study this paragraph. The most crushing blow comes not in the details of the final conflict, but in the final conclusions. So having seen the final conflict in verses 23 through 29, let's move now to the final conclusions that we find in verses 30 through 32. Verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Final conclusion number one, there is no neutral ground with Jesus. I believe that Jesus here is addressing the people so that they do not misunderstand the weightiness of what they're encountering in the deception of the Pharisees. 
So the people have asked, can this be the son of David? They are, in, in, they are interested. They're curious about him. It's as if Jesus begins with this final conclusion. To be indifferent or to somehow stand apart and to ask questions about Jesus. To be interested in Jesus. To be even motivated to learn about Jesus to read the Bible, to find out facts about Jesus, but to not know Him, to not be with Him, is to be against Him. There is no neutral ground with Jesus. Matthew could not be more clear. Consider for a moment all the different people who claim to be aiding others apart from Christ. Maybe you've encountered people and you say, well, they're doing such good things. How could God judge them for the goodness of what they do? Surely he's impressed by Mother Teresa's of the world who have given their life for the betterment, quote unquote, of humanity. But understand, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. Any humanitarian help, quote unquote, any work to improve the life circumstance of others that is devoid of a Christocentric motive and message is actually opposed to Jesus. It's actually bolstering the pride and self-confidence of humanity, which is leading them away from Jesus. Their poverty has placed them in a circumstance where Christ is attainable. He's there. He's present. He's the help. He's the hope. He's the only one they can turn to. And in giving them aid without giving them Christ, we are simply bolstering the self-confidence and leading people away from him. If we're not with him, we're against him. If we're not gathering to him, we're scattering from him. No place for a gray area. It's for or against. It's gathering or scattering. What are you doing? What am I doing? What are we doing? Where do we stand with Jesus? This is the question that ought to be on our hearts. Am I with him or against him? And on what basis am I with him? Am I gathering to him? Christian, are we gathering or are we scattering by our indifference and our apathy? There's no neutral ground. It's always extremes with Jesus. It's always polar opposites. Because he's polarizing. We must consider first verse 30. There is no neutral ground. Second final conclusion that comes from verses 31 and 32. There is a rejection of Jesus. By sinners. Who result, who, which results in the rejection of Jesus toward sinners. Notice verse 31. Therefore, because it is true that anyone not with me is against me. And because it's true that if you're not gathering, you're scattering. Therefore, I tell you. It's as if Jesus talks to verse 30 to the masses. And now he looks directly at the Pharisees. and He says, therefore, I'm telling you, this is what you must consider truth. Every sin and blasphemy will be for, excuse me, forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. They just did this. And whosoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age 
or in the age to come. He closes the door on forgiveness. The ark door is closed to those who blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. There will be no hope. These are shocking words to us. These are the words that can only come from the one who has the right and power to forgive sins. Many have struggled with this portion so much so that some have concluded in desperation that someone else said this and then added it in and ascribed it to Jesus. But let me propose to you this morning that this is Jesus. Matthew, under the direct oversight of the Holy Spirit, the direction and the inspiration process recorded these words. These are the words of Jesus for us. The problem we run into when we read verses 31 and 32 When we read in verse 31 that not every sin has forgiveness available, we run into a roadblock. Why? Why is it that that's difficult for us to handle? Well, let's go back. Let's go back to the 65th Psalm. Go back into the Psalms with me, if you will. And let's look at why this causes us problems. And we could go all day. The rest of the day, I wouldn't mind it. We could go all day. Looking at these texts and articulating the problem we have. Psalm 65, the heading in the ESV says, O God of our salvation, to the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. Notice verse 3, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions blessed is the one that you choose to bring near you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts if we turn back a few pages we remember in psalm 51 blessed is the one whose transgressions have been forgiven flip over to psalm 86 psalm 86 furthers our dilemma when we hear jesus hard words in verse 31 of matthew 12 Psalm 86 and verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. There is a wideness in God's mercy. There is a grace and a compassion that flows from the throne room of heaven that encompasses all blasphemy and all sin except one. And this is, in fact, the unforgivable sin the problem we have with Matthew chapter 12 is Psalm 65, 3, 86, 5, 133 and 4 and 1 John 1, 7. Our understanding of God's offer of grace is that it covers any and all sins. But in fact, there is a sin communicated in Matthew 12 that will not be forgiven. No one in heaven will have done this. These are tragic words. Understand the Pharisees are hearing this. This is Jesus saying, it's over. There is no hope for you. Your rejection has reached its limits. How does this work? Notice verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. 
The elect who in ignorance speak out against Jesus and his ministry will be forgiven. I believe that the clue or the key to unpacking this section is really understanding what Jesus means when he says, Son of Man, Holy Spirit. Obviously, we're talking about the Trinity. He is God in the second person. So what difference does it make if I blaspheme the Son of Man, Jesus, or if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, the title, Son of Man, I believe, is the clue to understanding what Jesus is saying. If based upon human experience and limited understanding, you speak against, which is blasphemy, you speak opposed to Jesus, the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. Who comes to mind? Who was a blasphemer of Jesus' name who was forgiven? There's someone in your Bible that ought to come to mind who's spoken of in 1 Timothy 1.12. His name was Saul. He was from Tarsus. And on a road to Damascus, the blasphemer, persecutor, killer of Christians who identifies himself as such in 1 Timothy 1.13, was redeemed because in ignorance he opposed the Son of Man. But those who would blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that is, those who would see the perfection of Christ, the fullness of his revelation, that he is not just the Son of Man, he is the very God-Man. Enabled and empowered by the Spirit of God in the fullness of revelation, those who would ascribe that in blasphemous wickedness to Satan have had a full revelation and have made the full rejection of Christ. There is no hope. This much revelation matched by that kind of rejection will not be forgiven. This is this is terrifying. I, this morning as I sat in my chair in my living room, I was praying about this this morning and I was, I, I, I'm fearful of this passage. This is a terrifying passage. It scares me. It scares me that some in this room have tasted. They've been so close. They've tasted it. They've seen the glory of Christ. They they have come in full contact through the word with the glory of Christ. They're not uninformed. They are not ignorant. They are rejecting a full revelation. And in so doing, are sealing their judgment. Those who see the fullness of Jesus' power and the undeniable messianic power granted by the Holy Spirit but reject him. These ones have displayed their permanent damnable state. Some of you probably right now are you have a, a MacArthur study Bible, which I highly commend to you. If you don't have one, get one or wait a year until it comes out in the ESV and then and then enjoy that. That's our little grace of the valley secret. We shouldn't pass that out. I'm going to be in trouble for saying that. We'll take that off the tape. Um, the MacArthur study Bible is very helpful in so many ways to us. And in this text, I feel like, once again, it helps say it better than I can ever communicate it to you. So let me read you the note. And if, if, I'm, if I'm reading what you're looking at, just humor me. Someone never exposed to Christ's divine power and presence might reject him in ignorance and be forgiven. Assuming the unbelief give way to genuine repentance, even a Pharisee such as Saul of Tarsus 
could be forgiven for speaking against the Son of Man or persecuting his followers because his unbelief stemmed from ignorance, 1 Timothy 1.13. But those who know his claims are true and reject him anyway, sin against the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit who testifies of Christ and makes his truth known to us. No forgiveness was possible for these Pharisees who witnessed his miracles firsthand, knew the truth of his claims, and still blasphemed the Holy Spirit because they had already rejected the fullest possible revelation. They, along with those in Hebrews 6, had been so close to the full revelation of Jesus that they could taste the power of God. And they blasphemed in the face of it. To be ignorant of Jesus is to reject Jesus. But what we've found in the final conflict and the final conclusions is to to know Jesus in his fullness and deny him is to be rejected by him. To see him rightly. To get it and to blaspheme him is to walk away from forgiveness. And the potential of grace. Now let me consider with you a few thoughts in conclusion. Number one. Remember who identified. The Matthew 12. And the Hebrew 6 people. Jesus identifies these individuals. We pray. Warn. Pray. Warn. Pray some more. For all who are in unbelief. It is not the application of this text. To go walking through your day. With Matthew chapter 12 out. And say. Bingo. I got one. I got one. I found one. You're Matthew 12. Any more than it's your job. To go through your day. With your Bible. And say. There's an elect one. There's an elect one. Absolutely not. We are to take the gospel. Without regard. But we are to warn that this is true. There is a rejection of Christ that leads to rejection from Christ. This is a fearful reality, but it is truth, folks. So Jesus identifies, we pray and evangelize. Praise to the sovereign God. For parents, particularly for a sister and her friends, one of whom was here last week is our guest who prayed for a blasphemer. Pray and warn. Pray and warn. Second application, Christians. There's got to be motivation towards growth that comes from this kind of assurance this morning. If you're sitting here and you're saying, praise God, I'm in Christ. He's opened my eyes. I've been forgiven. Hebrews chapter 6 has to come back into into play. If we keep reading in Hebrews 6, after saying that about the people who have come close and walked away, we find verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, 
but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Because we are granted assurance and hope in the face of terrifying warnings. In Matthew 12, we must be spurred on towards imitating our great Savior and imitating those who have imitated him. We should be motivated by Matthew 12 towards sanctification because we have been the recipients of forgiveness and grace. And because we have assurance and hope, it should be to the end of our growth. Thirdly, questioning sinners, curious onlookers, and nominal believers. Those who have been raised in an environment where saying you were a Christian meant nothing more than you had a few facts about Jesus right had prayed some prayer after someone else did, raised your hand in the right time, walked the right place at the right time. Nominal believers who have never understood that repentance and faith mean the end of self, the total dependence upon Christ, and a complete allegiance to Christ, a surrender of me, and a placement of him on the throne of my life. Do not see your rejection of Christ as a mere timing issue, or a convenience issue, lest you be found rejecting him in the face of full revelation and there be no forgiveness in this age or in the age to come. In other words, if you're here this morning and you are asking questions about Christ, we are glad you're here. But asking questions does not ensure God's grace. Only the end of yourself Only the total bankruptcy of your own righteousness, of your own ability to get God's attention and to earn his love at the end of that, when recognizing that that will never do, your sin is too great, his standard is too high. When you fall in total surrender and look by faith at the cross of Christ, where Jesus died, having lived a righteous life that is credited to those who place their faith in him, having died the death that we deserve, being credited to those who place their faith in Him, being raised from the dead on the third day, granting eternal life to those who place their faith in Him. If you will come to the end of yourself and place your faith in Christ, crying out in belief that He is the substitute, don't ask questions. Fall in faith before the cross. Don't take lightly or think too highly of your curiosity about Christ. And nominal Christian, do not think yourself safe because you know facts about Him. Lest you know the facts, blaspheme the facts with your life and your your entire being and spend an eternity apart from Him in eternal hell. Matthew chapter 7, nominal Christians, says there's going to be a bunch who say, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. I did that in your name. I even went to Grace of the Valley in your name. I served in the nursery in your name. I did work after work after work in your name. And he will respond to those who have never been his. Who have never been brought to the end of themselves. Falling by faith in the finished work of Christ. Depart from me. You workers of iniquity. I I never knew you. Father, I don't know what else to say from this text. I don't know how else to explain it.
my heart is gripped by the severity of these words. It's gripped by what I believe your spirit intends for us to understand from these words. Convince us that there is no neutral ground. If we are not in Christ this morning, if there are those who are here that are not in Christ, Father, convince them that there is no neutral ground. There is no place where you will show grace and favor apart from in Christ, from in your son. Those who are in him, that is, place their faith in him, seeing their sin and your wrath, acknowledging their just penalty before you, but believing that Christ is that substitute, only those ones will receive your favor. Convince them, Father. Convince us as your people that it is not enough to have tasted grace. It ought to be our ongoing life to be with Christ and to be gathering to Christ. Father, I pray that the final conclusion for these blaspheming Pharisees would smite us with fear. For those who are curious about Jesus, but have never known him or followed him. For those who would claim to be his, but in no way give themselves and their allegiance and obedience to him. Who have no fruits of the Spirit's life in them. I pray that this text would drive them to repentance before this would be true of them. We thank you for your word. It sobers us. It places us where we should be, which is humbled before you, the creator, majestic sustainer, the one who reigns. We are nothing apart from Christ. May he be praised as we're affected by this text. To your honor and glory, Father, we pray. Amen.